Samuel, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, if you have a Bible with you, open to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, where we're going to be today. And feel free to pull the sermon outline out from your bulletin as well. Well, I wanted to uh, start with a little bit of a personal announcement. Um, Becca and I are expecting a baby girl. Um, yeah, thanks. As I've been told, we're not pregnant. She is pregnant, but we're expecting. Um, so this is, our, uh, this is our third child, by God's grace. And uh, so we have two older boys, Andrew and Aaron. Andrew's four. He has been praying for a little sister for a year. Uh, he's very excited. Aaron is one. He eats sand. He doesn't really know what's going on. Um, I, I uh, wanted to just mention this to you guys all, sort of all at once to, to cover a couple of the questions that sometimes come up. Um, baby's due in October. Uh, Becca's doing okay. She has good days and bad days. Uh, if you see her, please don't tell her she looks pregnant. That's not nice. And she really is. You don't have to confirm it by touching her stomach. She really is pregnant. Uh, and uh, so we're really looking forward to a little girl. I assume it'll be a lot easier than a little boy, right? Right? You guys have daughters? Tell me it is, please. I need to know that right now. Okay, good. Um, and uh, the other part of why I mention it, too, is, uh, you know, it, it's a, children are a blessing from the Lord. Right? I mean, that's what the psalmist says. And it's a good thing to remember God's blessings and to, to in worship together, to be thankful to God for what he has blessed us with. But I, I was hesitant to bring this up a little bit because I know that um, we all experience God's blessings in different ways and at different times and in different measures. And uh, in the last week alone, Beck and I have talked to three families in our church who are struggling with fertility issues. And so I, I, I'm hesitant to bring this up a little bit because I, I don't want to in any way um, pour any salt in the wound of what's a difficult situation. But for all of us, blessings are going to come at different times and in different ways in our life. And we're going to look at David's story today, and we're going to look at how David responds to blessing. How does David respond to blessing that he wasn't expecting and didn't deserve? And I think the question that's going to be there for all of us is, when God's blessing comes in our lives in ways that we can see, because God's blessing is always there for us in Christ for, for all eternity, but when it comes in ways we can see, how do we respond to God? 
Now, all of us are going to be, like I said, experiencing that at different times in different ways to different measures, and uh, we can be uh, focused on the ways that we are missing out or the ways that we're experiencing it, but, but the question really remains the same. How do I, uh, how am I thankful to God? How do I respond to his blessing in my life? And part of why I think that's an important question is because God stops David when he's doing it wrong. You know, in this passage that we're going to look at in 2 Samuel 7, there's an assumption that every expression of gratitude is a good expression. And yet God stops David. It's like, nope, that's not right. There's something else you need to learn. And so I hope that as we dive into this passage together, we'll be able to learn about what it means to respond to God's blessing in your life. Well, a quick word if you're, if you're new here or maybe you haven't been here in a while. We're going through the whole Bible this year in honor of our church's 75th anniversary. And we are going through it from Genesis to Revelation. We're about a third of the way through. And uh, last week we talked about Saul, who was the first king of Israel. And today we're going to talk about David, who's the second king of Israel. Saul was a radically insecure person. He was consumed by what other people would think about him. And in the end, it not only cost him his kingdom, but it cost him his sanity and his soul. And Saul is deposed as a result of his own insecurity and disobedience to God. And following uh, Saul becomes another king, uh, someone who's not descended from David, someone who's not descended from Saul, but who's anointed by God to fulfill this role of being the king of Israel. That's David. Now, when we think of David, we often think of David as a man in victory, right? He's the one who conquers Goliath. He's the one who rules Israel. But for most of David's life, he was a person who was on the run. He was someone who, acting out of humility and obedience, chooses to obey God rather than take the easy way out. And in fact, for 30 years, think about that, for 30 years, David's been anointed for the role of king of Israel, and yet he does not live into that for 30 years. He's on the run from Saul, sometimes uh, because he needs to be, and sometimes because he refuses to take matters into his own hands. And by the end of 1 Samuel, the, the book we looked at last week, David is so discouraged and so despairing that in 1 Samuel 30, it says he wept until he could weep no more. Well, that's a sermon for another day. Um, but at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul dies. In fact, Saul's uh, heirs, his sons, die as well. And David is thrust forward as the new king of Israel. The first couple chapters of 2 Samuel sort of mop up that story. And then in 2 Samuel 7, David is in a place of security and prosperity. And the, he has this question now of, what do I do with the blessing of God? How do I respond to that? So let's look at what he says in uh, 2 Samuel verse seven, uh, Second Samuel chapter seven, verse one. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, "See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent." David looks at his situation and he's embarrassed by it, because he looks at the amount of prosperity, uh, security and peace in his life. And he says, this isn't a good fit, right? The Ark of God was what had represented for the last 500 years the presence of God with Israel. It's sometimes called the Ark of the Covenant. It's made famous, of course, by that movie from the 80s, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Um, that's actually where the Bible gets it from. That's the place. <laughs> no. No, obviously, it's the opposite. Um, and the Ark of the Covenant held the Ten Commandments in it. It held some manna in it. It held some other ways of reminding Israel of God's faithfulness to them throughout all time. But can you imagine what a 500-year-old tent smelled like? 
Can you imagine what it looked like? Right? This was a decrepit and disgusting specimen, I imagine. And David looks at it and he says, this does not fit, right? God deserves the honor. I deserve to be in the moldy tent. I certainly write in that accord. But what happens next is David presumes and assumes to do something about it. And to make matters worse, he's encouraged in that lane by Nathan the prophet. In verse 3, Nathan says to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And to be honest, if this was sort of like a contemporary American gospel, that's just where the story would end. Like, just go do whatever you want. Like, be authentic. Be your true self. Like, whatever you want to do. Like, stand up and worship, sit down, get on your knees, bark like a dog, whatever. It's all cool. Um, but, and that's not fair. That, that, I, I don't mean to disparage worship leaders who, who rightfully encourage us to express ourselves authentically before God. But there is a warning implicit in this passage. The warning is that good intentions are not always what God desires. They're not always enough because God objects to David's plan and he corrects him and teaches him something really important about what it means to know him. Look at verse four. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. Now listen to these next couple of verses to how many times he talks about the people of Israel versus the king. In all the places where I moved with the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Who's God's emphasis on? It's on the people. It, Throughout the last 500 years, God's telling David, I've gone where the people have gone, not where the king has gone. I've gone where my people are, not where their leaders are. I've gone to be with the people of Israel. Ever since on Mount Sinai, when I came to them and I said, I will be your people and you will be my God, my desire has to been to dwell with them. Even going back further than that, going back to the Garden of Eden, right? What did God do? He walked with the people in the cool of the day. And ultimately, as we look forward at this, not spoiler alert, to the end of Revelation, the end of time, it's that the dwelling place of God is with man. Like, God's desire has always been to dwell with us, not to be honored from afar. And so God tells David, no, I, I don't want you to build a house for me. Like Saul before him, David is going to find that God has strong opinions on worship and how worship should happen. So why does God object so strongly to David's plan? Now, let me uh, dismiss one thing at first. It's not that God has a problem with temples. It's not that God is a priori against buildings. In fact, later on in this chapter, God will tell David, you know, your son, Solomon, will build a temple for me. Uh, God has used an ark and the tabernacle for the last 500 years to represent his presence to the people of Israel. Of course, God is present, is omnipresent. He's in all places at all times. So it's not like God is only in a house or only in the ark. But these visualizations help humans in our limited capacity to understand the idea that God is with us. So it's not that God's against temples or he's against buildings. So why is he against this plan? It's because he's against David's desire to prove his worth to God. David mistakenly thinks that he needs to show that he belongs here with God. He, God corrects David and tells him, you know, before Israel did anything to deserve my presence, I was with them. Before they did anything to deserve my favor, I traveled with them. Before they did anything to deserve uh, 
before they did anything to drum up my presence or to drum up a spiritual feeling, I traveled with them. I'm the one who comes near to them, not you to me. I don't need you to earn my grace. God is the source of blessing, not David. He's the one who builds the house, not the other way around. God is essentially telling David, do you think you're going to do something great for me? No, no, no. No, I do great things for you. God has dwelt with Israel for centuries without them building a temple. That's not what God's after. Rather, God is desiring to be with his people. He's essentially saying, yes, David, you're at rest, and that's a good thing. But the issue is never about the king being at rest. It's about the people. Notice, did you hear how he moved with the people? He shepherded the people. His hand is actively with them. God doesn't want to be separated from them. Now, I I bring this up because we can fall into the same trap as David. You know, most of us don't desire to build a temple, but we can fall into the same trap of experiencing the blessing of God and feeling insecure or feeling undeserving and trying to cover that up by proving that we belong to God. We can forget about the grace of God and the incarnation of God. Like David, we can sometimes want to assuage our guilt over the blessing of God by proving that we belong. Like Jesus would say later on, we can worry about what we eat and what we drink and what we wear, forgetting that it is the Heavenly Father who gives good gifts to his children. Rather than delighting with gratitude, we can try to earn our way to God. Similarly, we can uh, forget that God's desire is more to dwell with us than to benefit from us. Sometimes we can get into this mistaken assumption that God's chief goal is for us to work on his behalf. Like Mary and Martha with Jesus, we can make the mistaken assumption that it is better to serve than to be present with God. I wonder for you how you're doing with that. Like, do you, do you feel some level of guilt or shame around blessing that you're trying to cover by making it up to God, by earning your way before him? Maybe it's not temporal blessings, but maybe it's a sense of, of spiritual well-being before God. You know, I wonder this week, if, your choice, if you're faced with a choice, do I spend time with God or do I do something to serve him, I hope that you'll spend time with him like Mary did. You know, Jesus models this so well for us himself. He pulls away from the crowds. He pulls away from ministry in order to spend time with his father. How much more should we? Okay, so no, David, you can't build a temple for God. Yes, God's blessed you, but, but that's not the way he wants you to say thank you. In fact, he wants you to do the much more honest but awkward thing of expressing gratitude without deserving it. The right way to respond to God's blessing, David shows us, is through unabashed gratitude. David's perspective shifts as a result of this passage, and I think ours needs to as well, because God's blessing is far beyond our capacity to ever earn or to repay him. In David's response at the end of the chapter, we see how uh, he recognizes that all good things have come from God, and that there's nothing that we could do to earn them ourselves. So this is in verse 20. It's a snippet of a longer prayer of thanksgiving. Look at verse 20. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. What a line that would be difficult to pray. You have brought about all this greatness. Sounds like a Kanye song to me, but... um, (laughs) I tried that joke at 8 o'clock, and no one made a noise. (laughs) I'm just so astounded by these two verses, that David would pray to God 
God, you know your servant. You know how undeserving I am of all the ways that you've blessed me. You've seen my thoughts. You've seen my doubts. You've seen my questions. You've seen how soft-hearted I am and how, hearted I can, how hard-hearted I can be. God, you know your servant. Why have you blessed me? Now, I know for some of us, it's hard. We're, we're in, maybe in seasons where it's difficult to feel blessed by God at all. But just as a reminder, like, if you're in Christ, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. A thousand years from now, 10,000 years from now, you will have access to the throne room of God. For eternity, you will be experiencing complete joy with God. I saw one dad who explained this to his four-year-old recently. Heaven means that you never have to floss again because there are no cavities in heaven. <laughs> right? If we are temporarily ahead or behind on blessings on this earth, it matters so, so little. We all should join with David in amazement and delight in the fact that he has blessed us. David knew his own heart and frailty, and he almost laughs in response. God, how is this possible? You know, I was the last in my family. I was so overlooked as the shepherd kid that my brothers didn't even think I was worth bringing to meet the prophet. And now here I am, the not only the, uh, the first in my family, but the king over all of Israel. He doesn't see himself as the hero, but he sees God as the hero, the one who has accomplished this great work. And that's spiritually what we're like. We're unlikely, undeserving, and forgotten if it wasn't for Jesus. And so we look at the blessings we have in Christ, and we see how radically unfair they are. You know, we don't deserve these. But like David, we can join in gratitude as a result of God's grace. Now, times when we feel inadequate, or we feel insecure, or we feel undeserving, we have a choice. Right? We can either live in the midst of that inadequacy and say, this is hilarious, but God, you have chosen to do this, and I'm grateful. That's the option David chooses. Or we can choose the option that so many of us choose, which is to pretend, or to hide, or to prove, to try to puff ourselves up, to act like we belong, to fake it until people will believe that we really deserve this. And we say things like, I'll build you a temple, I'll serve, I'll lead, I'll earn this spot. God, I'll prove to you that I belong. No, no, we, we didn't make God bless us. We can't deserve his blessing, but all we can do is be grateful for what he's done for us in Christ. Well, I, I want to jump to the last part here uh, in verse 11. You know, I mentioned that God promised to bless David, and, and really what David thought was the extent of the blessing was the things he experienced in this life, right? That he had become king, that he had had rest, and he wanted to build a temple because he was so grateful. And God says, no, there is so much more to come, right? The blessings of this earth pale in comparison to what is to come. And uh, it's this passage that's known as the Davidic covenant. When God promises to David that the, the whole line of salvation will come through him. And I want to just read a, a portion of it here in verse 11 to 13 and describe what the favor of God looks like in David's life. Now, these things aren't transferable. Like, don't apply this to your life. God is not promising you a Messiah will come from you. But it is something that we all benefit from. Verse 11, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Do you hear that contrast? No, that, well, hear the footprints. God bless the children upstairs. Um, no, do you, in the text, do you hear the, the contrast that God is making, right? David's desire was to build a temple, what he calls a house for God. And God says, no, I'll build you a house. I'll build you, build you a dynasty, right? There'll be the house of David, the lineage of David that will rule forever. 
The very thing that you wanted to give me, I will give you tenfold. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is fascinating because it happens long after David has any ability to earn this or deserve this. When he lies down with his fathers, when he dies, when he's unable to do anything else to deserve God's favor, God will continue to bless him because it was never based on his activity in the first place. The favor of God continues on David's house forever. God's blessing on David will continue long after his life is over. And why does God promise this to David? Because it's a sign of his grace and his love for the benefit of all who would come after him. God's promise to David is that his lineage would rule God's people forever. There will never be a rightful ruler from this time forth of Israel that doesn't descend from David. All right, well, this passage, is that's what it's saying. This is written in 900 X BC. Um, did that happen, right? That was 3,000 years ago. We have history to judge whether God was right. Like, are there still Davidic kings ruling over Israel? I don't, anyone know? Are there kings? Is it a monarchy in Tel Aviv? No, no, okay, good. Good, because I was going to throw off the rest of the sermon if there turned out to be a monarchy in Tel Aviv I didn't know about. No, I mean, it depends on how you count whether it was fulfilled, right? David's son Solomon would become king after him and would rule for a long time. And then his grandson Rehoboam would fulfill the, king, the lineage after that. But after that, it gets pretty sketchy pretty fast. I mean, Rehoboam had a lot of problems. He splits the kingdom out of his own foolishness. The 10 northern tribes uh, end up, not the 100 and some years later, get driven off into captivity in Assyria um, and eventually vanish to history. The two remaining tribes in the south only last another 150 years after that before they're exiled to Babylon. Um, not long after the exile returns, the Davidic kings only last a short period of time after that. Um, by the time that Jesus arrives in about 30 AD in terms of his public ministry, there's no Davidic king ruling Israel. King Herod, who we read about in the Gospels, wasn't Jewish at all. He was an Edomite, um, and he certainly wasn't of the line of David. So how could we say this is fulfilled? By the way, in 70 AD, Jerusalem's destroyed altogether. By 135 AD, the Israelites are driven out of their land. There's no monarchy or nation to speak of. By 1948, when Israel's reconstituted, it's reconstituted as a democracy. How can we say this passage is true if there's not a Davidic king that's ruled for the last 3,000 years? Okay, let's close in prayer. No, um, <laughs> no I, I, I know that you guys know the answer is Jesus, but it's still worth reflecting on, right? When God gives his promise to David, he's giving him not just a promise of politics, but a promise of salvation. Look at verse 14, how God describes the, what the fulfillment will be like. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Man, that's worth thinking about on its own. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, were these things fulfilled by Solomon? Yeah, to some, to some degree. There's some fulfillment by Solomon. Solomon would build a temple. He would uh, reign in his father's footsteps. But you know what? Solomon is not the only son of David. That's why those genealogies at the start of the Gospels are so important. 
Jesus himself, a son of David. On his father's side, that's the genealogy in Matthew. On his mother's side, that's the genealogy in Luke, is the son of David who comes to fulfill everything that was promised in the Davidic covenant. Sure, Solomon would build a beautiful temple, but it would only last for a couple hundred years. Jesus would establish a new temple in his body. That's what he tells his disciples. He says that at his crucifixion, he would tear, and then we see at his crucifixion that the temple curtain being torn in two because the new temple has replaced it, the temple of his death and burial and resurrection. And that's why Christians, we don't sacrifice anymore because the temple that David wanted to build and that Solomon built would be superseded by the one that Jesus would build in himself. Solomon would be like a son to God in that he would be disciplined when he committed sin. But Jesus, as the true son of God, would take on our sin for himself. We read that passage about, you know, by, his, by the stripes of the son of men, he would be chastised. And we say that's Jesus, but that's not Jesus, right? He, he didn't commit any sins. And yet it's for our sin that he would be disciplined. Solomon's sins would bring consequences in his life. His own foolishness would result in his, uh, his son losing the throne. But Jesus would take on our sin, and so doing, he would ascend to the throne at the right hand of God. Sure, Solomon's line would last for generations to come, but Jesus would establish a kingdom that neither death nor time nor sin could ever touch because it's been established forever by God himself. Well, the covenant that God makes with David is a source of joy and hope for him, but so much more for us. Right? We look at David's, uh, the Davidic covenant and we see the hope that comes in Christ. We see the hope that all of us have in Jesus. You know, at the start of this sermon, I talked about the blessing of expecting a baby daughter, which obviously we're really excited about and we'll be excited about, I, I'm assuming, until she turns, I don't know, 12 or so? No, um, that's, that's even a worse joke than the Kanye one. I'm sorry. But you know, a thousand years from now, like 10,000 years from now, the only blessings that will really matter are the ones that come from Jesus Christ, right? They're the ones from knowing him. The ones that come as a result of being with God forever. So whether you're experiencing a time of blessing that you can see or not, whether life seems good in this world or not, all of our hopes ultimately rest on what we have in Christ for the world to come. Um, so a couple questions for you to pray about and to reflect on this week. Why do I need the blessing of God? Why do I need the blessing of God? You might just open yourself up to God. God, what do I think is going to happen when you bless me? Am I, am I sort of hung up on a, a situation in my life where I feel like I need you more? Or is there a way that I'm looking forward to eternity and the blessings that I receive from you? And then secondly, God, can, I, can you help me recognize your blessing in my life? Can I help can you help me see the ways that you have poured out blessings on my life beyond what I ever expected? Well, let's close our time in prayer. Jesus, thank you that, as it says in Ephesians, you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Would you teach us, would you, would you teach me uh, to humbly and joyfully recognize all the ways that you have shown your goodness to us today and forever? That we look at David and we see his receptive heart and his grateful heart and his... Um, teachable heart, and we ask that you would give us the same. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we are going to take communion this morning, and uh, if the ushers who are going to help with that could come forward at this time. In 1 Corinthians, in one of the ways it describes the, the cup in communion is it's a cup of blessing which we bless. 
when we take uh, the bread and cup together, we're reminded of the blessings that we've received in Christ. And even in Christ's death, we recognize the blessings that we need. So uh, if you've never taken communion with us before, I'm glad you're here. The way we're going to do it is we're going to pass the bread through the rows, take a piece as it goes by. After everyone's been served, we'll eat the bread together, and then we'll do the same things with the cup. Um, if you're not a member of our church, we're still glad to celebrate communion with you. If you're a Christian, we don't uh, have closed, we don't have what's called a closed table. Anyone who's decided to follow.